This week on the show, we have LLDB threading support now ready in NetBSD. We have a tutorial for you to have multiple IPsec VPN tunnels with FreeBSD. We cover a little bit the Netflix-optimized FreeBSD network stack that doubled on AMD Epic performance. And we tell you about happy eyeballs with Unwind. AWS got FreeBSD ARM12 support. OpenSSH U2F slash FIDO support is here. And more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 328, Epic Netflix Stack, recorded for the 11th of December 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to our episode this week. We have some interesting headlines, as always. Uh, this one here reads, LLDB threading support now ready for mainline. Yeah, so this is a post over on the NetBSD blog uh, from Mikhail Gorny. He says, upstream, or sorry, upstream describes LLDB as the next-generation high-performance debugger. It is built on top of the LLVM slash client toolchain and features great integration with those. Uh, at the moment, it's primarily uh, used for supporting debugging in C, C++, and Objective-C, and there's interest in extending it to support more languages. Back in February, uh, Michael uh, had started working on LLDB um, under contract by the NetBSD Foundation. So far, I've been working on re-enabling the continuous integration um, so that upstream LLVM will be built on NetBSD and any breakages will be caught that way. Um, squashing bugs, improving NetBSD's uh, core file support, and extending NetBSD's ptrace interfaces to cover more register types and to fix any Compat32 issues, as well as fixing support for watch points. Uh, then he started working on improving threading support, which is as it turns out, taking much longer than expected. Uh, and you can read more about that if you look at the report from back in September. Um, so far, the number of issues uncovered while enabling proper threading support has stopped uh, this work from being able to be merged. Um, basically, the work in progress originally was planned to go into uh, NetBSD's mainline, but there were too many problems. However, uh, I finally reached the point where I believe that the current work can be merged and the remaining problems can be resolved afterward. Uh, moreover, um, these and other LLVM-related events happened during the last month uh, and have impact on this. So the first is LLVM news and the build bot status update. The first thing is LLVM has switched their repository to Git from Subversion. So say probably the most important event is that the project switched from Subversion to Git and moved the repositories over to GitHub. While the original plan provided for maintaining the old repositories as read-only mirrors, as of today, that still hasn't been implemented. For this reason, we were forced to quickly switch uh, the build bot that runs NetBSD to using a Git monorepo. Uh, the build bot is now operational uh, and seems to be handling Git correctly. However, it is uh, connected to the staging server for the time being. Its URL has changed a couple of times, uh, but there is now a NetBSD AMD64 builder over at lab.llvm.org. Um, based on that, they now have a monthly regression report. Um, so, you know, what have we broke this time? Uh, LDB has been given a new API for handling files, in particular for passing them over to Python scripts. Uh, the changes of API have caused some bad file descriptor errors. And I have an example here. Uh, he says he's been able to determine that the errors were produced by the flush method call uh, invoked on a file descriptor referring to standard in. Uh, and so solving some of those issues. 
and so on. Uh, LLDB upstream was forced to uh, reintroduce the read line module uh, override that aims to prevent read line and libedit from being loaded into a single program simultaneously, as those two libraries uh, basically do the same thing and do not get along. Uh, this module failed to build on NetBSD. I've discovered that the original was meant to be built only for Linux. And uh, since the problem still doesn't affect other platforms, uh, they've marked it Linux only again, and that should solve the problem. Uh, the libunwind build has also changed to link using the C compiler rather than the C++ compiler. Uh, this caused some uh, libc++ failures on NetBSD. The author has reverted the change now and is looking for a better way of resolving the problem. Uh, and finally, uh, they've disabled OpenMP tests, which caused NetBSD to hang. Uh, while ideally we'd like to have the underlying kernel problem fixed, it's non-trivial and the focus right now is getting LLDB working. There's also been work on LLD, the linker. Uh, so they've managed to rebase their LLD patches onto the newer code and uh, finally committed the dash Z no GNU stack option. Um, in the meantime, Camille, another NetBSD committer, uh, has been working on finally resolving the long-standing impasse in LLD's design. He's working on a new NetBSD-specific front-end for LLD that would satisfy our system-wide linker requirements without modifying the standard driver used for other platforms. Uh, I say Our recent work, especially the work on threading support, has required a number of fixes to the NetBSD kernel. These fixes were backported to the NetBSD 9 branch, but not to NetBSD 8. The 8 kernel uh, used by the build bot was therefore suboptimal for testing, and therefore... Um, with the 9.0 release coming soonish, uh, they've switched the build bot to use the 9 beta. And then they have some other uh, further work on LLDBA threading work, including fixing register support. Uh, they've finished basic thread support, and they're working on the watchpoint support for multi-threaded programs. And they say, in summary, the current version of the patches fix approximately 47 test failures and cause approximately four new test failures and two hung tests. There are around seven new flaky tests related to signals concurrent with breakpoints or watchpoints. Their future plans, uh, the immediate goal is to investigate and resolve the test suite regressions related to upgrading to NetBSD 9. The second goal is to get the threaded support, uh, threading support patches merged and simultaneously work on resolving the remaining test failures and hangs. When that's done, I'd like to finally move on to the remaining two items, which are adding support for backtrace through a signal trampoline and extend support for libexec info, unwind implementations like LLVM and non-GNU, uh, and examine adding the CFI control flow integrity support uh, to interfaces that need it to provide more stable backtraces, both in the kernel and user land. They would like to add support uh, for I3D6 and ARCH64. Currently, it's AMD64 only. Uh, stabilize LLDB and address uh, breaking tests from the test suite. And finally, merge LLDB with the base system under an LLVM-style distribution. Oh, cool. That's good progress. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this work was sponsored by the nonprofit NetBSD Foundation. Any donations to help us continue funding projects and services in the open source community uh, should go there. Yep, especially as the year comes to a close, uh, they also um, might want to close their books. So donate as, uh, as before the year runs out to any of the BSD foundations, by the way. Uh, in our next item, we have a tutorial for you about uh, multiple IPsec VPN tunnels with FreeBSD. 
So this is done in the classic style and totally ASCII uh, uh, writing, especially including the ASCII art down the bottom. Uh, but the introduction goes like this. The FreeBSD handbook describes an IPsec tunnel, a VPN tunnel, between two FreeBSD hosts, uh, but it's also possible to have multiple two or more IPsec VPN tunnels created and running on a FreeBSD host. And how to implement and configure this is described in this document. So um, the requirement for you to have is that uh, you have three locations. Uh, they call it for simplification here, A, B, and C. Uh, they are connected with IPsec VPN tunnels using FreeBSD. They use 11.3 release, but I guess newer uh, releases will also work. Yeah, I don't know that there's a big difference uh, in the IPsec stuff between 11 and 12. 12 might have some performance enhancements but it wouldn't be anything i don't think it would be anything that would change the instructions that's probably the release that was uh, tested or available during that time okay so each location has one ipsec vpn host running freebsd so it's vpn host a b and c then vpn host a has two ipsec vpn tunnels one to location b this is vpn host b and one you guessed it to location c vpn host c then they have a nice uh, ASCII art diagram to illustrate how these networks are fitting together and how they are located and uh, interconnected. And so um, they have uh, starting points here. Uh, so the three locations, A, B, and C. Each location has a VPN host, uh, A, B, and C. And all three VPN hosts are running FreeBSD. We mentioned that already. And uh, yeah, Fairly straightforward, there's a firewall involved between VPN host A and network A2. Is that just for, um, ah, that's sitting before uh, the internet. Yeah, so before they these network uh, clients go out, they have to pass that. Yeah, and basically in their examples, commands and so on, uh, the interface EM0 is always the one facing the internet and EM1 is always facing the, the local network. Mm-hmm. And then they list off their example IP addresses, which are not from the example IP address range, but are 1234 and 9876, et cetera. Yeah, so you can easier distinguish those. So the implementation steps are done for all of the three hosts, and uh, we're not covering everything of that, but but it basically boils down to installing uh, the IPsec tools at the beginning and on all the three hosts. And then um, you enable the gateway. So it's gateway underscore enable using sysrc for all, all the three hosts. Then on the three VPN hosts, you enable IPsec and Raccoon. That's what they're using. Uh, in rc.conf, using IPsec underscore enable equals yes. IPsec program, the path to the set key program. It's user local sbin set key. Uh, the IPsec file is in user local etc raccoon set key.conf. And Raccoon enable equals yes. Then on the host A, only on this one, you do the uh, alias IP address on the internal interface, EM1. Uh, so that's a specific IP address for this host. Only do this on this one host, otherwise there will be <laughs> trouble and your ne- network will definitely spew some errors to you. Uh, then you create a GIF0 and GIF1, or yeah, we call it GIF, and uh, set up those tunnels there. And then create the static routes to network B and C so that this host already knows about those two. Then you basically do the same for uh, host B with a different address, of course, and the same interfaces. And also add the static routes to networks A1 and A2. And then you continue this on host C to connect this to uh, hosts and networks B and C. Uh, They have plenty of uh, output here. So they also show... um, 
the necessary config parts for the raccoon.conf and what needs to be in the files specifically with the IP addresses. They're very specific. So when you're going through this how-to, don't type everything as it is because it's specific to that network. Um, unless you have the similar network at home or wherever you implement this. Uh, so be a bit careful. Yeah, these are real internet writable IPs. So don't use the, uh, you know, one, two, three, four is, you don't use that. But yeah, you know, this way you're forced to replace them rather than just use whatever they put in the tutorial. Yeah. And don't get confused on which host you're running these things because it involves three hosts and three networks. So that might be a bit confusing. Um, but so far, it's pretty straightforward. In like uh, 13 or 14 steps, you get to where you want to be in your multiple IPsec VPN. This is uh, pretty standard if you have like a head office and two remote offices or something like that. Yeah, so they're tied all together and using uh, IPsec to communicate over the evil internet so no one uh, can listen to your internal communication. But it's like in your local network, you're all connected and uh, yeah are in one big network. Uh, so next up, we have uh, Foronix has picked up uh, Drew Gallatin's talk from EuroBSDCon and says, uh, Netflix has optimized FreeBSD's network stack to more than double the throughput on uh, an AMD Epic. Um, so Drew Gallatin of Netflix presented at the recent EuroBSDCon 2019. The videos uh, for that are on YouTube now. We covered that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in Norway, on the company's network stack optimizations that they did to FreeBSD. Netflix is working on being able to deliver 200 gigabits per second of network performance for video streaming out of uh, Intel Xeon and AMD Epic servers, uh, to which they now are reaching you know, the theoretical limits of about 190 gigabits per second. Uh, with dual 100 gigabit network cards. Uh -huh. In particular, they've managed to more than double the performance they were getting out of the Epic Naples slash Rome servers, as well as uh, hefty upgrades for the Intels as well. Uh, Netflix has long been known for using FreeBSD in their data centers, particularly where network performance is concerned. But in wanting to deliver 200 gigabits per second from individual servers, led them to make a number of uh, NUMA optimizations to the FreeBSD network stack, including allocating local memory for kernel TLS crypto buffers and for backing files sent via the send file uh, system call uh, were among the optimizations. It's all described in the paper and uh, slides and video. Changes to the network connection handling and dealing with uh, incoming connections to Nginx were also made since uh, to do kernel TLS, you have to uh, negotiate the encryption in, in Nginx, but then pass the symmetric key off uh, to the socket so that the kernel or the network uh, adapter can take care of the bulk encryption. Mm -hmm. They skipped right to the, the last slide comparing the performance um, before and after the code. Uh, so Netflix's new optimizations on FreeBSD resulted in their Intel Xeon 4216 being able to go from 105 gigabits per second to 191 gigabits per second. Uh, and in particular, a lot of that was achieved by lowering the Nubra, uh, Numa fabric utilization from 40% to 13%. So a lot less frequently having to send data between the different Numa zones um, by being like, oh, if, if the packet's going to go out a NIC that's in NUMA zone 2, let's allocate memory from NUMA zone 2 so that we don't have to copy the data back and forth across uh, between zones. And then 
before the changes, their Epic server was only doing about 68 gigabits per second, but after was able to do 194 gigabits per second. Yeah, that's an impressive increase. So they say the AMD Epic performance is even more impressive, going from 68 to 194. Uh, so while Epic started out much slower than the Xeon. Uh, it came out at about the same, slightly higher. It says, looking at it, the Netflix videos serving hardware for 200 gigabits on AMD, if it has you know the four chips in one socket, uh, since those AMD designs are basically four chiplets, uh, and so it has more separate Nubazones. But they have eight PCIe Gen 3 4X NVMe cards, so two in each different Numazone, and then they have four... Uh, PCIe Gen 3 16x 100 gigabit network cards, one in each of the uh, NUMA zones. Uh, so yeah, they have a uh, 100 gigabit network card in each of the four NUMA zones, and then two NVMEs in each NUMA zone. And the idea is to copy from the NVME, encrypt it, and send it out the NIC without going between zones. Uh, and they say, in particular, the advantage to the AMD layout is that it has 128 PCIe lanes. Uh, in a single socket, whereas I think it Intel's 40 or 50 lanes for the same uh, for a single socket. Or I think you'd only get double that with a dual socket. Um, and they're able to do all that with a single socket, whereas using two Intel Xeon CPUs they uh, to get that many lanes. One area that AMD was critiqued for is the inability for networks to, uh, Netflix to monitor the Infinity Fabric saturation. So if you remember when they were measuring the Intel performance, they saw that their utilization of the fabric that connects the different zones went from 40% to 13%. Uh, currently, there wasn't a way to measure uh, the change on the AMD platform. Hmm. There's not even tools to do it on Linux, let alone FreeBSD, whereas Intel has tools for FreeBSD. But in the end, uh, they're now effectively able to send 200 gigabits per second of encrypted video off either Intel or AMD machines. Uh, and if you want to know more about how it actually works, uh, check out the video and the slides. Yeah, they were great. I wasn't at the talk, but uh, looking through the slides afterward, that was like really enlightening. I think my talk was at the same time, so I didn't get to go. Uh, okay, so that's uh, reading material for you. Um, there's something else we want to uh Pay, uh, let, let your attention look on happy eyeballs is not <laughs> some weird new holiday greeting no yeah no it d d don't even start this uh it's uh actually something that's quite technical or something that's quite uh, standardized so far um so there's a little link here for the people who don't know what this is um to the Wikipedia article about happy eyeballs, because it turns out it's an algorithm published by the IETF, which can make dual-stack applications, like those that do IPv4 and IPv6, uh, more responsive to users by attempting to connect both IPv4 and v6 to the, at the same time, preferring, of course, IPv6. So doing that, they avoid using the problems uh, that are usually faced by users with imperfect IPv6 connections or setups. Yeah, sometimes uh, you have IPv6, but it's not perfect or it doesn't reach everywhere or something is screwy with it um, where you can get to the point where, oh, if I enable IPv6, some stuff might stop working uh, because somewhere somebody has IPv6 not configured well. And so uh, happy eyeballs are also called fast fallback uh, is let's try making both connections and then when whatever one finishes first, we'll use that kind of thing. Uh, or, you know, if the V6 works, great. But if not, we don't have to wait until it times out before we bother trying the V4. 
So they say Unwind has a concept of a best name server type. It considers a configured um, DOT or DNS over TLS uh, name server to be better than having its own recursive resolving. Uh, recursive resolving is considered to be better than asking the DHCP provided name server. Uh, it also actively checks the quality of a name server. Does it actually work? Then it's better than an unreachable one. Does it support DNSSEC validation by passing through the required records? Then it's better than one that doesn't validate, etc. And the crypto is always done by Unwind itself, so that doesn't have to be a consideration. Now, this is all static. Once it, figured, uh, once it figured out that DOT works and can do validation, then you're always going to use DOT. Always, no matter how far away that server happens to be. Or you don't have DOT configured, but you can talk unfiltered DNS to the internet. Uh, the recursor will be picked, no matter if you can only see part of the internet. Uh, maybe all .org name servers are unreachable from your location or something. So Unwind, Unwind knows about this. It tracks how long it takes to get an answer. It knows when it can't talk to the .org name servers. Either the query times out or we get an ICMP error back. But it doesn't do anything about it because Unwind determined, statistically, that you are already using the best possible name server. Why try something else? Well, because that particular query might be better answered by a different name server type. Or maybe we are sitting behind a satellite link and everything is terribly, terribly slow. So this diff sorts the name server types by quality. Uh, as above, you know, validation resolving doesn't work, etc. And as a tiebreaker, it adds the median of the round trip time to previous queries into the mix. Uh, then it considers the whole list, not just the best one. It picks the top one from the list, sends a query, and waits the median time for an answer. If none comes back in time, it picks the next one, and so on. Eventually, an answer is found. Maybe the first one comes back, or the second one was faster, or whatever. Uh, to keep the configured or default preference, the first resolver type gets a head start of 200 milliseconds, so that someone can't you know, try to maliciously make you not use the encrypted name server or something. One other interesting thing about this is that it sets up past captive portals without uh, check URL. That's why it's the diff was so huge. It rips out all of the captive portal stuff. <laughs> uh, so make sure you apply it with patch-capital-E. So it modifies 17 files, adds 385 new lines, and deletes 1,683 previous lines. Um, but please test this. I'm particularly interested in reports from people who move between networks and need uh, to get past captive portals. So, you know, laptop warrior type people. Yep, definitely test this and uh, give feedback uh, because then uh, it gets more robust and more, uh, more testing is better for everyone. But yes, having your uh, local resolver be able to pick some of this stuff uh, and consider more factors when deciding uh, what is the best name server uh, could be quite interesting and improve your experience, which is what Happy Eyeballs is all about, keeping the user happy and making their internet feel fast. That's what we all want. All right, uh, speaking of the internet and fast, we have something along the lines like this, uh, because uh, on Amazon AWS, there is now FreeBSD ARM 12 uh, images available. Amazon has launched a new set of hardware uh, basically instance types that run on the ARM architecture rather than the x86 architecture. And uh, FreeBSD with ZFS is available. So you can uh, just click here and deploy FreeBSD 12.1 to one of their ARM machines. And A1.medium 
is 2.5 cents per hour. Oh, yeah. So uh, medium means that it's uh, two gigabytes of memory, one virtual CPU core, and uh, EBS storage, and the networking is up to 10 gigabits. So uh, an A1 medium has two gigabytes of memory, one core, like you were saying, and up to 10 gigabits of network, whereas a large has four gigs of memory and two cores. Extra large is eight gigs and four cores. Uh, 2x large is 16 gigs and eight cores. Uh, and the 4x large is 32 gigs and 16 cores. And all of these are available only with EBS storage. So they don't have local ephemeral, uh, ephemeral storage. Okay, good to know about these. Refund policy. This is a free product. Yeah, yeah, important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it comes with a license. Uh, so if anybody actually tries that out, do let us know how it goes. Yeah, or what you're using it for, like developing a product for an actual ARM box or um, just playing around with the architecture. Uh, would be interesting to hear about this. At that price, it might even be worth it just to compile packages for your Raspberry Pi. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Better than doing it on the Pi itself. Uh, mm-hmm. Especially the older ones. Ooh, hours and hours and days pass. Um, <laughs> been there, done that. So, yeah, maybe uh, help yourself a little bit with AWS and do the compile there. Next up, we also have an interesting thing from the OpenSSH camp because they have U2F slash FIDO support in base now. Yep. So this is a post from uh, Damian Miller to the tech mailing list saying, Hi, I just committed all the dependencies for OpenBSD security key or u2f support uh, to base and tweaked OpenSSH to use them directly this means there will be no additional configuration hoops to jump through to use uh, u2f or fido2 security keys in openbsd so hardware-based keys can be generating using uh, ssh keygen with the type ecdsa-sk for security key uh, or ed25519-sk if your token supports that uh, many tokens require to be touched or tapped to confirm this step, uh, since they want to enroll your fingerprint or whatever. Uh, you'll get a public-private key pair back as usual, except in this case, the private key file does not contain a highly sensitive private key, but instead uh, holds a key handle that is basically used to identify uh, the key on the security token, and then derives a real private key at signing time. So uh, stealing a copy of the private key file without also stealing the physical security key or at least having access to it would not give the attacker anything. Uh, Once you have generated a key, you can use it normally. I add it to an agent, copy it to your destination's authorized keys file, uh, assuming that they're using uh, a version that can do that. At authentication time, you will be prompted to tap your security key to confirm the signature operation. This makes uh, theft of access attacks against security keys more difficult, too, since um, the security key won't just answer. You have to tap it. So that means someone can't, um, you know, get your key to authorize them without you tapping it. You know, if you get asked to tap it when you weren't expecting it, you know something hinky is going on. (laughs) But he does say, please test this thoroughly. It's a big change, and we definitely want it right before it goes into the next release. And then your little security tokens become even more important and uh, increase security at the same time. Mm-hmm. It'll be nice to see uh, if this will make it into SSH Portable or whatever and, and possibly become a thing on FreeBSD as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. So we can have our keys uh, with us <laughs> on the keychain. 
Beastie Bits, we have <laughs> interesting Beastie Bits for you this week. Uh, Dragonfly got some Virgio fixes, uh, the LandScan issue with Google Cloud. Yeah, so this is a change to the Virgio driver on uh, Dragonfly BSD. Specifically, uh, Cam will return Cam Dev not there instead of Cam Select Timeout when uh, translating a Virgio SCSI bad target. So when you try to access a Virgio device that's not there, it'll be like a device that's not there instead of saying that device was just too slow. Uh, and fixed a lens scan issue where Google Cloud VMs that uh, would cause the entire device to be dropped uh, when it was trying to scan. Again, the uh, cam cell timeout on a specific LUN would then raise a peripheral error, which would then say, oh, the device has gone away, and we would drop the whole device, when really it was just that something wasn't there. Okay, so it's, that's fixed, and people can uh, use this now properly. Uh, then we have an article about really fast Markov chains in roughly 20 lines of shell, grab, cut, and AWK, or awk. And so some people are like, oh, Markov change, isn't that chains, isn't that the stuff from theoretical computer science? Well, yes, but it can has, uh, can has its uses, uh, as people say. So let's uh, look at this more closely. So the article starts with, some days ago, driven by boredom, I implemented my own Markov chains in Haskell by following the great tutorial that's linked there as well. Uh, Markov chains can be a way of implementing really fun, dumb group chatbots that can generate new random messages that sound realistic based on the previous history of the chat. So, but for people who have not uh, heard about Markov chains before, here's the definition from Wikipedia. A Markov chain is a stochastic model describing a sequence of possible events in which the probability of each event depends only on the state attained in the previous event. And they link to another article about uh, the introduction of the concept of Markov chains. Uh, in the case of a group chatbot, each state, or node of the graph, is one of the words that was previously sent in the messages, and each probability of transition towards another state or word is based on the frequency of the first word, transitioning the source state, and being followed by the second one, the transition's destination state. So basically... How often does so? So when we're we've said a word and we want to pick what words come after it, what words have we seen statistically are most common coming after the first word? So after coding a simple Markov chain on words in Haskell, uh, they've noticed that it was really slow and resource intensive, even on a few thousand of messages. Uh, this was because the model was calculated by summing the frequency of word pairs, and it was kept in memory inside a data.map structure. Although the Haskell implementation can get much faster if optimized, uh, the friend Francesco showed them the amazing implementation of Markov chains on words made in plain shell and awk in roughly 20 lines of code. So the Markov.sh uh, has basically, uh, his project is split into programs. The first one, markfeed.awk, is a really uh, simple awk program that separates words on a line into pairs of words separated line by line. So you have a for loop. Uh, that goes until, uh, oh, I'm covering uh, ARC in two weeks in the, my own lecture, so I, it's kind of a good uh, reminder here. So you count until um, an F is reached, and that's a special built-in uh, God-given variable in ARC that, that tells you how many fields there are, number of fields, and then you print the current index and increment the one, yeah, the current one by one, and print it out, outside of the loop, so you get the result, 
so the example here is, uh, let's take the simple chat log. So the first one says, hello, everybody. The second one says, hi, people. Then the third is going, hello, people. The fourth one is, how are you? And the fifth one is, how are things going? So the first step is creating a model for the Markov chain. Here's what will be into the model when we run this uh, arc script, piped into sort for readability. So this is just are things, are you, everybody, going, hello, everybody, hello, people, hi, people, how are, how are, so there are duplicates, people, people, things, going, and you. Yeah, so figuring out which words come after other words. Then the next step is generating a new random message. Uh, so that's also a little uh, script here that's not too difficult. Uh, it's using TR and uh, removing the backslash n, so you have the full line. And then you echo the result. And so at first, uh, make uh, Markov words. We'll uh, pick a random nine from the model and pick the first word of the pair as the first word of our output message. After this, it will filter the model to find what word pairs start with the first word it picked. And let's say it picked the word hello as the first message of the mess, uh, the first word of the message. And it will then randomly choose the second word of the message from the second element of a pair in the model that starts with the first word it chose. So in this case, it picked hello as the first word. Uh, it may pick one between everybody and people as the next word. It then repeats this process by passing the last word it chose as the word to chose in the next iteration and maybe even easier to understand in terms of code than in plain words. And so then they provide the full script here. Yep, and it's a well-documented plain shell script with a little bit of grep and awk in it, basically. Uh, in particular, they also mentioned that the fact that their word database generated by the first awk program has some lines that are duplicates is fine. It's actually what gives it the, the power to weight the probability. Those uh, The duplicate lines have a greater chance of you landing on them randomly. Yeah, so don't remove those, or they shouldn't be uh, uniqued out of those, <laughs> as we say. And so, yeah. Uh, they, um, note at the bottom here that the Markov shell script is extremely fast, even on relatively large data sets, millions of lines. And uh, this is very nice. So uh, you probably remember this, Alan. There's this company in Japan that does uh, all kinds of um, data analysis or even data mining with just shell scripts because it's so much faster. Right, the, the Unicage development model or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. And so you think, yeah, these are tools that are written years and years ago, uh, but they're still pretty powerful in today's world, especially when you have this the big data applications now. Uh, of course, there's not a silver bullet, but I think people don't consider them uh, when they think about doing these uh, data processing tasks. Yeah, and then they uh, do the obvious thing with it and hook it up with the fortune database to generate random fortunes. <laughs> yeah, that, that gets a bit silly sometimes or hilarious. Uh, and if someone puts that in a, in a chat window or creates a text bot out of it, everyone is very confused in that chat. Yeah, so looking at their uh, fortune database, they got a bunch of random output like, the thoughts of meta language are still free or uh, <laughs> low taste and going insane. <laughs> yeah, this is like the, the, the weird fortune you have to think about a bit longer what the meaning is. <laughs> the dimensionality of computerized fortune tellers. Welcome to computer generated text. But it uh, does go to show that you can do an awful lot with the basic text processing tools in Unix and some pipes, which really is. Uh, what makes Unix so nice is just that 
you know, you can chain these separate tools together and get really interesting things. Mm. And it makes uh, something as it might be a bit boring to, to cover Markov's chains, but if you cover it in this way, where you can show the applications to like students, then they will see, ah, this is what I can use this for, and that's kind of a good introduction to the topic. Yeah, it really does make it um, easier to understand what's happening when you can then give people a very simple set of code that they can read and that they can run and and actually you know see what's happening. And in particular, starting to maybe make a little change and see how it affects the output. Uh, it can be a much better way of learning than just explaining it uh, or having them try to write it themselves from scratch to start and so on. And it's, it's actually, you know, the thought behind that, the TeachBSD uh, concept where rather than teaching operating systems by using a little toy operating system that's easier to understand, it's using the observability of FreeBSD with tools like Dtrace to actually watch what's happening in a real operating system as you're running stuff on it and then being able to make small changes and then observe how that changes the outputs. Yeah, so that's much more approachable. All right, uh, we also have the new edition uh, of the FreeBSD Journal. And their topic this time is security. Yeah, and it contains a bunch of great articles. Uh, starting out with the headline one is an update on Capsicum um, by Marius Zaborski, who's done a lot of uh, interesting work on Capsicum in the last couple of years. It says, every day the FreeBSD community makes improvements. And in this article, we'll take a look at how Capsicum has changed over uh, the course of 2019. Then uh, Brooks Davis uh, gives his... Uh, article on improved memory permissions in FreeBSD. Basically covers uh, the machine-independent memory permissions uh, and how to fit that into the current MMAP permissions model. Uh, it's kind of relates to that uh, WXRX stuff we were talking about recently and and a bunch of other interesting stuff. Uh, you know, Brooks is working on the CherryBSD project and implementing memory safety uh, in hardware. And so he's definitely the right person to be talking to about this stuff. Uh, and then we have uh, an article by Roller Angel about uh, configuring full disk encryption on FreeBSD. While there are multiple ways to configure full disk encryption on FreeBSD, this article covers one method which provides an easy route to follow and get started using FreeBSD's full disk encryption system, Gelly. Uh, and then, uh, because it happened to fit the theme and, and was an interesting way to, to get BSD now into the FreeBSD journal, uh, they actually have uh, a transcript of the interview Chris Moore and I did with Powell Dodek back in 2014 uh, from BSD Now episode 62, uh, which, as you can imagine, was quite a while ago now. Uh, I think that one was in Bulgaria. Yeah, could be. We did that yeah. in Bulgaria in the uh, the coat check room uh, <laughs> at the conference venue. <laughs> Uh, but it's a, a really good interview, both about the original porting of ZFS to FreeBSD and about uh, the security appliance that Pavel has built. There's also the uh, foundation newsletter from John Baldwin, um, a great letters column from Michael W. Lucas, where people wrote in a letter and he responded. Uh, conference reports from Coscup, from Benedict, uh, a report for VBSDCon from Brad Alexander, and a report on EuroBSDCon uh, from Chris Aruana uh, and the event calendar for upcoming stuff um, by Ann Dickinson. 
Yeah, so the as we keep we keep mentioning the journal is free, so you don't have to pay anymore for getting the issue. So we encourage you to download it and read it. And uh, if you're interested in becoming an author, maybe you have a how-to or an interesting story about the BSD, then get in touch. There's information in there how to reach the uh, the journal makers. Yeah, uh, it turns out it's really easy. You write some text and they make it look pretty and put all the pictures in and stuff. You don't even have to do the craziness. Yeah, you supply the text, they provide the nicely rendered uh, article. Uh, then next up, we have a little fundraiser here uh, for Beehive. Um, this is done by Michael, Lu uh, not Lucas, Dexter, of course. Uh, Dexter is raising money to complete the VertFS as uh, 9P support in Beehive for FreeBSD and eventually Illumos, uh, which is, uh, as he writes, the groundwork for Windows WSL2-like support for seamless virtual machine integration. And basically, it would be allowing you to mount... Uh stuff in the virtual machine so that you can move files basically back and forth easily mm -hmm. and if you want to know more about this there's info at bsdfund.org and then last we have some interesting work out of um openbsd yes the syscall or syscall call from verification so uh the following changes only permit system calls to be made from address ranges in the process uh which system calls are expected from uh, so the idea is here, if you manage to upload exploit code containing a raw system call sequence and instructions and mprotect it with not writable but executable, uh, that same block, such a system call, will not succeed, uh, but the process will be killed. Um, this obliges the attacker to use the libc system call stubs, which in some circumstances are difficult to find due to libc being randomly linked at boot, so it's never in the same place. Hmm. So this is accomplished by adding one extra condition to the fast path of the syscall not on a writable page check. Uh, for static binaries, the valid regions are the base program's text segment and the signal trampoline page. For dynamic binaries, valid ranges are ld.so's text segment and the signal trampoline, and then the libc.so text segment, and of course the main program's text. Uh, unfortunately, our current Go build model hasn't followed Solaris and macOS approach yet of calling libc stubs and uses the uh, inappropriate embed the system calls directly method. Uh, so for now, we'll need to authorize the main uh, program text as well. Uh, I comment in execelf.ce explains this. Uh, if Go is adapted to call uh, library-based system call stubs on OpenBSD as well, this problem will then go away. There may be other environments uh, creating raw system calls. I'm guessing we'll need to find them as time goes by and hope then that we can repair those as well. The kernel performs most of the syscall allowed registrations, uh, but the permission for libc is done by ld.so, once it randomly maps libc into the address space. This is the uh, purpose of the new M syscall. syscall. <laughs> uh, so procmap has been updated to show the syscall regions with the E flag and the stack regions with the capital S flag. Uh, so when you, uh, when you run procmap on a process, you can see which areas are allowed to make system calls. Okay. Uh, this diff uh, does break the ABI, so ld.so depends on a new kernel system call, msyscall, uh, so you'll need to run a current kernel first, uh, which contains a dummy version, and then after that, you'll be able to uh, compile and use the new versions. Okay, so people need to be aware of that, but yeah. 
Yeah. And the i3d6 version of LD.so uses custom code library loading and uh, hasn't actually been tested yet. So be careful with that as well. Then we thought, well, with the upcoming holidays, people might have a bit of time to uh, tune their FreeBSD installation a little bit or add some more stuff they haven't done before. So we are having a link here to the FreeBSD forums, especially to their how-to section that has a couple of great articles that uh, users have provided there and have updated. And so you find articles like how to set up a FreeBSD desktop from scratch or how to create a Debian Linux jail on FreeBSD. So there's a couple of cool things in there. And uh, yeah, if you have some time, maybe try some out some of these and maybe you have some cool new thing that you didn't know how to do before. Yep, and I also have uh, one on here on how to load the i915 graphics drivers, including how to see which um, model of Intel graphics adapter your computer comes with, depending on what um, type of processor you have. Uh, and the tutorial explains how to run the drivers and all that stuff. Yeah, so they're very in-depth and they even have the syntax highlighting so you can really distinguish between uh, commands that you need to type in or uh, stuff that is just explanatory. And they have quite a, f- uh, quite a few of these how-tos and FAQs. So. Yeah, so some might be a bit outdated, but definitely uh, check them out uh, and try. Uh, well, there's a lot of pretty new ones in here, including uh, managing photography the Unix way, setting up a RabbitMQ cluster on FreeBSD containers, uh, automating transmission, the torrent client, uh, to use a VPN while everything else uses your normal connection, um, a bunch of tutorials on doing like FFmpeg or adding subtitles to a video, uh, a slightly oddball one here of how to mount a fan onto your LSI HBA. <laughs> okay. Well, could be useful to someone. Ah, there's a nice one here. Uh, OBS, which is Open Broadcaster Studio, which is a video streaming application that works on FreeBSD uh, with pulse audio and an external USB mic and how to get that to work. Um, that's interesting. It's kind of thing we would use to stream video, uh, live video to YouTube or uh, Twitch or uh, anything from FreeBSD, which you can, you know, uh, if your user group ha- if, is having a meeting and you want to stream from FreeBSD, then that tutorial might be useful. Uh, but if you still have questions, then it's time for the feedback and questions this week. And if yours isn't covered, then definitely send this to us to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then it will appear in a future episode. So we have three questions or a feedback in general from people. The first one is uh, Jerome, I think that's the name, and uh, with feedback. So this goes like the following. Hi, Alan and Benedict. Since you guys mentioned in episode 313 that there might have been a problem with the contact form on the site, uh, I just wanted to make sure my feedback got through and didn't get lost. Well... It reached a show. It's live. Here we go. Uh, I have been listening since episode one, and I really enjoyed the show. Thank you. Uh, I have to confess that I'm not actually using any of the BSD flavors. I'm a Java developer running Windows and Linux, but I have learned a lot about Unix via the podcast, and I even purchased two books by Michael W. Lucas about OpenBSD and FreeBSD because of the show. Keep up the good work, and I'm looking forward to a lot more episodes of BSD Now and Fossum Talks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, great. Thanks for this feedback. It's interesting. I would have expected the Lucas books to be things like sudo and so on that were kind of applicable to other stuff you use too. Yeah, for the development parts that you sometimes need to do. 
having a bit of knowledge about many different things is very useful. Yeah, because you can interconnect them in interesting ways, or you can just talk to your developer friends about this cool operating system that you have found, and maybe one of them is also uh, trying it out one day. You never know what comes out of that. All right, uh, thanks for that. So next up is uh, Savo about uh, PFSense ports. So Sabo writes, Hello Alan and Benedict. Here's a question I'm sure hasn't been asked yet. I have PFSense running on an old tower. I was running, uh, it was running great when I had a 100 megabits per second connection. Now I have a 400 megabits connection. Uh, I have a dual port PCI, legacy NIC, and the model is Intel chipset 82546 dual port gigabit. Uh, 8492 MT. The motherboard also has a board Realtek Gigabit uh, port this way. Um, that is the management VLAN that used to make changes to the config and other VLANs. The dual port NIC serves uh, WAN on one port and my 10 VLANs on the other one. I got 450 to 500 megabits per second when I plug in a test PC straight into the cable modem. I get 200 till roughly 250 megabits per second maximum on any VLAN. I can also achieve 450 to 475 megabits per second on the management port. So my question is, how difficult is it to swap the Realtek on board with the WAN port? I already have rules on my VLANs to prevent them from talking to each other. I don't want to have uh, to rebuild them. I think most of the rules in PFSense are floating and can be just changed around. So I expect, yeah, that you could just make the Realtek be the WAN port and the, the old WAN port on the dual port NIC, uh, the new management port, and that, that might give you a bit more bandwidth, possibly because the PCI interface is only capable of something like 640 megabits total. The bus speed yeah, is the limiting factor. Uh, so I think in PFSense, that should be a relatively straightforward operation to just change which NIC is used for what, especially since you won't change the one that has all the VLANs on it, leave that one alone and just change the other two. Uh, it means that you shouldn't have uh, to redo all your rules or anything like that. Yeah, it should pick up the new uh, interface. I ideally, automatically when you switch? Well, no, but you'll have to tell PFSense in the interface. But Oh, right, yeah, yeah. I think the trickiest bit is going to be you like plug into the existing management interface disable the WAN interface, reprogram that as the management interface, then you'll have to move around and connect to the new management interface to get back into the interface to then reconfigure uh, the old management interface as the new WAN interface. Although I think if you use the text menu on the actual console of this tower, uh, that that can be done with less, you know, clicking around in a browser. Uh, but that should work. Although, uh, you know, you might also consider using a slightly less old tower that has PCI Express uh, and then having uh, NICs that are slightly less limited on performance. Hope that helps. And uh, yeah, thanks for sending in the question. Uh, so then we have Tin with a more general topic. I want to learn C. Okay, Tin writes... Hi guys, thanks a lot for the podcast. I listen every week. Oh, great, thank you. And I enjoy the show. Wonderful. Oh, why? <laughs> Otherwise, why would you listen if you don't enjoy it? Uh, okay, so his question is, um, it's not about BSD. I use both BSD and Linux, but it is uh, related somehow. You guys are pretty smart and knowledgeable. Ah, come on. Um, <laughs> and I look up to you. Oh, wow, thanks. Well, we just, we're beginners at one point. We're just on our way to begin becoming more smarter like everyone is. Okay, so here's this question. I know you both program in C and I've always dreamt about learning C. 
I don't have any programming knowledge and I'm 32 years old. Well, it's not too late for that. Do you think it is possible to do? Where do I start? Should I start with something like Python or is it a good idea to just try to learn C? I look after small business IT for a living, uh, point of sales, small network, repair, etc. But I would like to do my game and learn more. And what pathways do you recommend in terms of learning more about networking, data centers, ZFS, etc.? Like, I didn't start learning C until I was 30 or 31. Uh, so that part's definitely doable. I know I had started dabbling with programming uh, before then, but that's not that big of a deal. So you're a really beginner. He hasn't had any programming knowledge. I got into C via other languages. I'm not sure which path is the best. Um, there might be more approachable learning sources starting with something like Python. Uh, than trying to go straight to C. But, you know, if you only really want to learn C, then uh, it might make sense to try to go straight there. But if you're just interested in programming in general, uh, Python will probably get you to the point where you're actually building useful tools for yourself or for your, you know, your small IT stuff uh, more quickly. And that might make it more rewarding, which will get you to keep at it longer and so on. Uh, the one resource I had recommended uh, when I replied to this email uh, last week was there's a website called Code in Game, C-O-D-I-N Game, which has these little puzzles that you can solve. Uh, and it supports like 10 or 15 different languages. Uh, so you can, you know, do it in Python or Java or C or Perl or whatever. And so like one of the puzzles is this spaceship is coming down and it's going to zap all these mountains, and if you don't do it right, then you'll crash into the mountain. Uh, and so you get input on standard in, and you have to you know, make decisions with it, and then put output on standard out to fire the laser to try to you know, knock down the mountains instead of crashing into them or whatever. Or there's one where uh, you're a motorcycle, and you get a reading of how far away the next hole in the road is, and you have to decide when to jump. But as you're going, you start going faster, and so you move more squares at a time, and so you have to figure it out and, and tell the game when to jump to jump over the hole in the bridge and not fall through. Uh, they're all relatively simple and they get more and more complicated as you go. But it can be really handy for uh, just practicing programming, uh, having you know small but tractable programs that you can try to solve and where there's not really limits on how you can solve it and so on. But I also found it useful for uh, learning a new language. Uh, you know, it's like, well, I know how to do it in one of the other languages that support it. So first I'll solve the problem in the other language and prove that I have a working solution. So now I have the kind of the, the program flow or the algorithm or the pseudocode in my head based on I already wrote it in PHP or whatever. Now I'm going to try to solve it in this new language that I'm less familiar with. Um, but it'll be easier because I already know what I already know a solution that works. And I just have to rewrap my brain around this other programming language. So most of these things are, if you're a beginner, um, concepts that you have to learn. So what's a variable versus a constant? What's, uh, what's a loop and how do these different loops work? Because if you have those down, they don't change very much between programming languages. And if you know a couple of these loops, then you can transfer this knowledge or this concept into other programming languages. So you can start with some other easier language. Yeah, like... You know, if you look at stuff like Perl and PHP and, and even Java, in the end, the if statement looks about the same as it does in C. They're basically all modeled off of what 
see came up with. Uh, and so, yeah, experience with any programming language is still going to be a leg up on some other programming language. Yeah, and there's plenty of ways to learn nowadays. If books aren't your thing, then look on uh, YouTube or many of the universities have some free programming courses available and uh, just shop around. If a, if maybe a, a, a book doesn't work for you or that one book that everyone recommends is not your type, then look for something else. Then uh, there's plenty of books around that have... Um, that explain concepts differently. And if you don't understand something, don't give up. Uh, there's plenty of uh, good explanations in other books, or maybe this one chapter is badly written in your case, or in your example maybe, or you don't understand too much, then look in, in some other source. There's plenty of stuff um, to explain, and there's different uh, ways to learn. So uh, find the thing that works for you. And uh, maybe try learning with someone else um, because that's more fun and you can explain concepts to each other or try out different things. And that's one way of, uh, it, it still keeps you motivated and um, you can show your results to someone else. That's that's kind of rewarding. Yeah, or pair programming. Or again, that coding game thing is can be interesting for that because if you both tackle the same challenge, you can go away separately, come up with your solutions and then compare them and see you know who got the higher score. But then also maybe looking at each other's uh, code and being like, oh, I would have done this slightly differently, but use, you know, combine the two and maybe even come up with a better solution. There's uh, lots of interesting games in there. Yeah, so hopefully we gave you a couple of pointers, as we programmers say. Definitely reach out if you uh, have more problems or get stuck somewhere. Then we'll uh, try to steer you if you have a concrete question about, you know, what's a function or, I don't know, what what's a function pointer or something. That's a more advanced concept, um, but it's not uh, too late to, to learn this even at a later uh, time in your life. Okay, so thanks for these questions. And that pretty much wraps up this episode for today. Thank you all for listening in and hope to get you uh, tuning us in uh, next time. See you next time.